0: Okay, uh, so, so Jerry, uh, uh, over five years ago after the Fukushima uh, nuclear disaster happened, you know, we all uh, were very worried about our families and what was happening. And very quickly we started to worry about what radi- radiation levels are. And when we went on the internet and we went on television and we, we tried to look for it, we, we had a very hard time getting any data, and uh, not just data from Fukushima, but just data from anywhere in Japan. So we started to look around for that information couldn't find it then we tried to buy gaga counters uh, to measure ourselves and in 24 hours all gaga counters were were sold out so we didn't have uh, any means to to do things on our own so we you know ideas like crowdsourcing with lots of people with gaga counters didn't work out lead time for gaga counters went from six to twelve months so then we started to really uh, you know we brought lots of people together uh, with, with your great help and we started to think through what can we do here from tokyo and uh, we basically uh, looked at Google and we said if we can do something like Google Street View where we can drive around with a Geiger counter we can maybe uh, maximize the use of the very few Geiger counters we actually got by the time and that's what we did we built equipment, uh, we went to Tokyo Hackerspace, went, met people like Akiba and others and we started to put things together and in about a week's time we had a, a kind of a mobile Geiger counter that you could put on a car and it kind of kind of looked like this, you know it's kind of a you know, kind of a big bento, uh, you know, lunch box with a Geiger counter in it, and uh, we started to, you know, you can see that here. This is the actual Geiger counter that sits into the box, and we started to drive this around in Fukushima, and that's how we started SafeCast by collecting our own data and putting that on the internet.
1: And uh, by the way, um, Peter, I've got the images that you sent. If you want me to pull up anything,
0: uh, okay. Yeah. I- Maybe you can pull in some, some of the uh, you know, images of, uh, maybe an image of the people standing next to the car. So no, what, what we did next is actually, so... Actually, I, get, I don't have that picture. By the way, maybe you're mixing something. But well, the, the key thing is, is we used open hardware and open software like Arduinos mm-hmm. uh, to put the system together. And uh, so initially we, we built uh, lots of these systems by hand here in Tokyo. And, uh, and and that really got us going to start mapping out and what we were starting to see from the data that came back from Fukushima was that uh, opposed to what you know what what we heard from the government that the pollution was contained to a 20 kilometer perfect circle uh, it was all the way up uh, hundred kilometers away from the power plant and it was very spotty so you couldn't really tell the radiation level uh, by measuring literally everything around you because you could be in a, a low area here but a block a block away, the, the radiation levels would go up. So, uh, and as we started to meet lots of people in Fukushima, they were basically very worried about where they were living, and they didn't get any information around, you know, around their neighborhoods. So we started to make the plan to measure everything, uh, every single street in Japan, and uh, that's what we uh, went out to do. And we used uh, we used lots of uh, uh, The kind of the power of 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 the people themselves, rather than is like if you think about Google Street Map, you know, they decide where they're going to drive around. We turn that around, and we gave people devices, and people decided where they wanted to measure. I mean, basically where it mattered most to them, and that's how we started to get lots of data, increasingly more data from Fukushima, and we started to build up our radiation map.
1: And. um I I remember at, in the early days uh, the government was not very helpful and the media rarely even referred to us and uh, I think online um people were kind of criticizing us because we were uh amateurs and that uh and, and in fact we didn't really know what we were doing <laughs> but, but I think what was interesting I think was because we just whenever anybody criticized us Not whenever, but in many cases, we would just co-op them. We'd say, well, then it's kind of like Wikipedia where you say this is wrong. You say, well, why don't you help us fix it? And then I think what's really amazing to me is the extent to which, you know, you guys have, uh, really pulled in a lot of the people who are the professionals. And, uh, and, and, you know, maybe Sean, you can talk about the thing that you did in, in Washington DC. I mean, we, we're bringing in some of the world's experts and letting them play. And then, they have fun, and before they know it, they were sort of part of our team. I mean, like can you talk about the thing with the um n n s a guys at in Washington, or do they just say something I'm supposed to talk about
2: <laughs> no yeah we you know part of this is that you know we're trying to get everybody to understand this and and I think that the data that we started getting back from from our devices um looked very different um than the data that people were used to seeing not not because it was. Reporting different things, but people were used to seeing these really, really kind of averages um, of really wide areas, and our data was was very precise and and tagged to individual GPS points, so um, people were very interested to look at it, and that was actually a really good hook for us to to bring in some of these other professionals because they were used to staring at these data sets where everything was kind of averaged out over the large areas, and so having a new a new way to look at the same kind of data that they had had previously was very interesting for them. And, and we were sh- we've been sort of uh, professing a lot about how with the very few people we can get lots of data back. You know, you don't need uh, every single person to collect it. A very few people can carry these devices around and, um, and get lots of data. So we've, hold- we've held a lot of these workshops um, like you're referring to. So the one we did in, in Washington, D.C. Um, was a collaboration with the uh, uh, NRDC at their offices. And we invited in a lot of people. What does NRDC stand uh, for? the uh, Natural Re- Resources Defense Council. It's a, a big environmental uh, protection group in, in the U.S. that does a lot of litigation to try to uh, uh, keep keep the environment safe in a lot of ways. They're kind of watchdogs on mm-hmm. uh, on things. So we um, we had a, an event at their office where we invited lots of people, kind of pro-nuclear, anti-nuclear, um, pro-policy, anti-policy, all kinds of people into the office and talked about what we were doing. And then we actually had them build be geigies themselves with hands so they started off in the morning with a, a desk full of parts and by the end of the day they had their own geiger counters and um and then we sent them out around the city and we didn't have any any data from washington dc at all before that um and then so they went out just for a few hours and walked around the city and then we published all that information on our maps and after we published it one of the attendees was was uh from the the nnsa and um, um what does nnsa and he stand for it is the <laughs> National <laughs> Nuclear. Um... <laughs> <laughs> is,
1: is it Safety Agency? No. Yes, something. Know. Yes,
2: yeah, 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 exactly. So they're, they're the people that are usually monitoring radiation levels all around and, and keeping track of that stuff. And um, so they had data, but they, they had previously kept it locked up as, as kind of a national secret. Um, and then once we published our data, uh, then there was no reason for them to keep that stuff uh, private anymore. And they were able to post the the measurements they had on their own website as well. Um, and show the correlation between what we had and what they had. Um, and it was quite interesting because even once they were able to publish their data, there were still, uh, sections that are kind of blocked out, um, in their, in their data, you know, for sort of national security purposes, right? So just kind of arbitrary locations, right? Like around the white house or something. Um, but as the as a member of the general public with a Geiger counter in your hand you can walk right up so our 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 data um covers more ground um than what they were able to to release with theirs um and you know recently we just had this um
1: earthquake in Japan where it was kind of a uh i mean luckily it wasn't as bad as it could have been um but there was a lot of you know reminders of i mean I, to me the watching NHK and the guy, sort of hysterically telling people to get to higher land and warning everybody, sort of reminded me, took me back to sort of the earthquake days. But how, how did SafeCast? Uh, did anything happen on your guys' front? You want to talk about that, Peter?
0: So, so to take one one step back, uh, just to Here. just to what we did last five years. Uh, you know, we st- we started out with. with these type of devices that we drive around uh, uh, and it basically automatically measures radiation. But over the last two years we also have built uh, systems that are stationary. So he, they basically broadcast 24 by 7 uh, radiation levels uh, from all over the world but we all, we have a few sensors that are that are positioned within Fukushima and some of them relatively near to the plant. Uh, so you can actually go on that it is uh, it's on our, on our website you can find a link. And uh, uh, so what happened is, is when the tsunami was uh, about to hit the, the Fukushima plant two weeks ago, uh, we started to talk about that people could follow uh, the radiation levels live, and uh, we built a system for you know for that purpose that if there is something, people can get that information uh, uh, from somebody independent. And obviously, you know, five years ago, nothing was available, so we were. In the position to uh, broadcast the levels, who we were monitoring it uh, 24 by 7. The thing that uh, stro- you know really caught us by surprise was that just the sheer amount of volume we got on our website. And at some point, our server went down for about an hour or so. Uh, and after that, we, we got it back again. After you know, we got everybody together to look at what what wasn't working.
2: But I sent you, a, Joey. I sent you a traffic spike graph. I think that you can see where it shows. Uh, I messaged it over earlier. Oh, you can see I don't sort of the that. normal traffic and then. And then right. the surge.
0: Yeah. <laughs> just, just, just a moment. I think you you put up something else, and maybe I can provide commentary on that very quickly because I saw somebody was commenting that during the disaster, uh, you know, there was no information on national news channels. And actually, what you're looking at is actually a picture I took of the tele broadcast in April of 2011, and it's in Japanese, but. For those of not in the know, that the radiation levels there, you're per prefecture, you know, prefecture has a couple of million to tens of millions of people. There's only one value available, and the uh, the label on top of television actually says this is the radiation report, and that is pasted over Fukushima prefecture. So there, where the disaster is, there's no information, no levels, <laughs> not nothing. And this is literally was the day before I drove up with with our you know with the, with with the, with the Geiger counter system we had built to go and check out. And I just wanted to know you know, is this a good or bad idea? And uh, we had no idea. And, and I think the next thing you're showing, is the um, uh, is the radiation map that we have collected so far. Uh, the colors kind of uh, indicate the levels. Uh, darker blue uh, uh, indicates uh, kind of normal background radiation levels, and you can see where it gets red, yellow, and white. That is where uh, you know where the radiation. Radiation levels go up, and specifically are still even today quite high around the nuclear power plant. Yeah. Uh, so, yes. Now I'm just going to say
1: also, I remember when they were first showing it, they were just showing these cons- concentric rings of uh, for evacuation. But when you look at the data, actually, it shows that you know the wind has sort of created this swirl. And I remember some people were being evacuated from places that had lower radiation to maybe this is not common, but in some cases high radiation, and then. I live my house is in Chiba, right around one of those little red spots, kind of down south a little bit, so we had this little mini hot spot where the humidity and the weather just brought in um, the cesium into our area and what was you know and I think what was also kind of scary about all of this was with all of the experts and all of the planning, they knew that radiation just doesn 't emit itself and move around in concentric rings that 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 they have weather forecasts and stuff like that but um, either they were hiding it, or they just didn't know to talk about it. They didn't really explain it all. Um, obviously, you know, it, it would have been difficult to have this much granularity in the evacuation um, uh, planning. But it was—it's uh, it, just sort of the misinformation or the ignorance was quite stunning.
0: I, I think, Joey, one, one of the one of the big problems that happened in you know after the uh, after the Fukushima explosions happened. Was that the authorities sent people evacuated people from low areas to higher areas, and uh, you know there's there has been lots of uh, you know there's been lots of uh, documentation on really what happened and why the information wasn't public. But uh, the whole point of safe is to make that information public right away, so that we can make our own decisions, uh, in you know or can verify that you know is this is what is happening here. Mm-hmm. And I think today uh, things have gone a little bit better, but even today we're we're kind of the only organization uh, in existence that is doing this. yeah,
2: I, yeah, I, it's worth it's worth pointing out.
0: Go ahead. Oh, sorry, go no, ahead. Go ahead. Go ahead.
2: I was gonna say that it's worth it's worth noting um, in, at, at the original earthquake,, uh, you know, it was several days before there was any confirmation that there was radiation leaking, you know from any official sources. and then even evacuations took weeks, uh, you know, before any of that started happening. And so um the uh, you know, the earthquake the other day, Really showed that our proof of concept of building out this network we were able to keep people updated as to what what readings were coming in from our static sensors right next yeah. to the plant up to the minute on Twitter we were posting the information um, and and that almost six years on, nobody else was doing it, like as peter said like you know there's there's been all of this time and lots of people who sort of jumped on to talk about this stuff early on, but they kind of all stopped doing something whereas we actually built out the system. Yep and and it's working. And and one thing I will
1: say, I think it was last year. Um well two things and and Peter you could start waving your hand aggressively if I start saying things that you promised not to talk about. But um but I remember <laughs> when the government so first of all, I think that some of the people who have come in to Tepco and the government after the disaster, some of them are actually quite good and are trying to do the right thing. And I feel really bad for them because the people who were there at the beginning who were kind of I you know just not very good, and didn't know what they were doing. Um, they're still having to take a lot of the heat for, I mean, the damage and all that. And I remember going to a meeting in the government. Um, I think it was with Peter, and they were saying, "Well, we're now collecting this data, but the citizens, um, June is talking about trust. Citizens don't trust the government data anymore. Can SafeCast, you know, help us?" Um, and then I think just last year you produced a huge report. I think it was like a 190-page report. And I think what was sort of interesting in the report was, although we called them out, uh, both TEPCO and the government, on their failures, um, they had actually done some stuff that was good. And I think we called them out on the good stuff as well. And I think what's important also about SafeCast is just to be clear to everyone, we've never taken money from government. We've never taken any money from TEPCO. But you know, but we also say good things when they are doing the good things, because so we want to encourage right. the good behavior. Uh, you want to talk about that, Peter?
0: I, I, <clears throat> let me make a few comments on that because absolutely that, that is the right thing. I think the whole idea is it's not you know good guys and the bad guys. You know, it, it it's very important. I think how we started was we just wanted to know what what was happening and getting the facts right. And as you mentioned, we have had many dialogues over the last five years with many groups, not only in, with Japanese government, but Sean was mentioning, we've been talking with uh, counterparts in, in other uh, governments, including uh, IEA and and the U.S. EPA, etc. And the key thing is, is that one thing is, is we do, we measure independently environmental data, radiation levels. We publish that. We are very serious about it. We try to do as good job as possible with, by using everybody that is in our group, all people on the ground and uh, that builds up a, a natural trust you know if you have a cold and you want to know if you have a temperature or not you just measure it yourself but if somebody walks over and says peter don't worry you know you don't you know you're going to be fine but you're not measuring it you don't feel comfortable so you, you want to verify so that's what we do we verify for ourselves to understand better what is happening so what is happening with the, with the japanese government this is that from day one they lost trust and they still i think as of today have a major trust issue and uh, they, the the big issue is is that if you have a big disaster like this, you know, first of all, I don't think governments have the tools or, or mechanisms to deal with that uh, at the ground level. So it is in a way what we what we try to do is is to bring everybody together, empower everybody to be part of that, but also uh, uh, the uh, uh, in, in order to rebuild that trust, they came to us and say, you know, can can you can we uh, get help and in, in how do you do that? You know, and, and what we are been telling is you do that by having everybody participate and not making it a secret or not tell people uh, that, you know, don't worry about things. You know, you, you have to start saying that, is my street safe? Can I measure my own street? Can I confirm that? What does it mean? How does it work? And I think those processes are, uh, uh, you know, we, we had similar discussions with IEA and et cetera. So far, the, the stance has been is we broadcast information and there is no, uh, there, there is no context uh, to work in. And uh, I think, you know, we're, we're still having those dialogues. I think, as you mentioned, some things have improved. We have seen uh, the Japanese government, uh, to a larger extent, copy the way we're, we're measuring and trying to to do that. But I think there's many, you know, many steps left to, to work on. Uh, I think when the disaster happened uh, two weeks ago, when, you know, two weeks ago it had tsunami, fortunately enough it didn't cause a, a major issue. But... Uh, I think at that time we were still the only ones that could tell you the exact level at that point in time, so I think we you know more more work to do but I think also with radiation measurement what 's really important is is that we, we didn 't go out to find uh, desperately to go look for the highest level we could measure. Uh, we measured everything you know every single street in Japan from Hokkaido up to up to Okinawa has been measured, and it 's all about you know local level what is really happening this is not a news channel where we're trying to uh, create panic news uh, about high hotspots only uh, you know the, there's lots of people who live in neighborhoods that absolutely have no problem whatsoever in Fukushima prefecture uh, why would you uh, change your whole life if there's nothing uh, nothing that really happened so and that is I think the government had a real issue is, is that didn't go out and measured everything, so they left lots of people worrying about their neighborhoods not having the tools to measure it, which could have been a very different thing if they would have had all the tools in place to do it. Sorry, John.
1: Yeah, and I think I, I think this one thing that I wanted to point out is, as far as I I remember, I think more people became, and, and I think I'm glad that we changed the name to SafeCast, but because I think you know I remember stories of of people having these hazmat suits coming to their house to measure the radiation. And the government would say, well, we can't tell you the data because it's not part of our protocol. So you've got these people all bundled up measuring your house and then walking away. And when we would go with our people, we would share the data and we would show what parts, like the cesium stuck to the roof. So the uh, room at the top where the kids is hotter than the room downstairs. So maybe you should move them. And there's a pile of cesium by your drain. Let's help you move that out. But also just generally, I think people were, happier and felt safer after they got the radiation data, because in, in most cases, it wasn't as bad as you imagined, you know, and I think that that uh, protocol that the government had of just collecting the data, and not really sharing it, and, and and not allowing the people in the field to be that helpful, I think, especially at the beginning, I, I think they, you know, obviously started changing their protocol, but, but I think that most people felt better after they got their data than scared, you know, and I think that that that, that was important, too.
2: Yeah, so there's actually um, a, there was actually a, a group from Harvard that, that took our, our data, and they had a bunch of data from, uh, that they had mined from social media uh, to determine stress levels of people at different times based on what they were talking about and how stressed out they were, um, and correlated that to, to news reports of what was going on. And then they were able to take our data and, and see when we released things and how that impacted stuff. And they were able to show that um, stress levels uh, across the board dropped when people had data even if it showed something negative because then they at least had something concrete and then they could make decisions and regardless of what was actually contaminated or not when people didn't have data their stress was through the roof yep
1: um i don't know if there's a is there a question um including transparency um well, I think you know one of the things also might be to talk about uh other not cuz obviously radiation measurements are kind of interesting but mostly interesting to people who live uh near nuclear reactor although I guess that's maybe too many people. Um but you know we're doing stuff in air quality because I think the the key thing is the citizen science. I think you know there are other projects but we we really helped kind of make it a thing and I think that the fact that the government is now talking to us and Other people are like, how the hell did you do that? Um, And, you know, I'm curious how you think we're doing in other areas like air quality and are there things from our model? Um, Because obviously a huge earthquake is a lot, is is an easy thing to rally around. Um, But is there something that that we can do uh, moving forward for other things?
2: Yeah, I think think a really important piece is that um, it takes a very small number of people to create a really massive ton of data that's really useful to solve these problems, right? So talking about radiation specifically, um, you know, we only have a little over a thousand BGIGIs out in the world and and only like half of those people have ever submitted more than a thousand um, a thousand data points. I think the number that recently came in is there's only like 70 users in the world who have sent in more than a hundred thousand data points, right? So a very, very few people can cover a ton of space. And with just those few people, we've we've collected and published more, more radiation data than every other organization in history combined, right? In just a few years with a very few people. And so I think that model, um is infinitely scalable across all kinds of other uh, environmental aspects, right? So we have we we just started doing the air quality right now, and we're we're measuring particulate, and we have um uh, a handful of prototypes that we've deployed right now um, to people who are testing them and starting to send back in data. And we'll do the we're we're hoping that our our same idea um, will have the same kind of impact. Where if a few people are collecting really high uh, resolution data, um, then it tells a much bigger picture. Um than we've ever been able to see before with just a handful of sort of you know a government or official sensors in in different places
1: and there are two questions also Keiko's asking about um, uh, how do we know what the benchmark for data points is, and then Marco asks why do we make big idea a kit and not an assembled device? I don't know what okay. it...
0: right so so just on the just a little bit about the hardware for us maybe uh, And I think, you know, in in, in your book, Joey, we're we're talking about the, you know, the power of pool. And this is the hardware and people have not seen it. This is basic. this is actually something that is a kit of parts and and volunteers put this together uh, themselves. Most of them have never sold it before, but we made it, uh, we made a very good manual for this. So it most, and everybody has so far been succeeded to get it to go. We work, we do this also in workshops. And why didn't we manufacture something? First of all, in the beginning, uh, uh, we had no time to manufacture Most people don't realize that manufacturing is a very expensive and slow process. And to get something on a shelf, it uh, takes six, to, to, six months to a year. So we didn't have the time for that. We only had a week or two weeks. So we started off by taking off the shelf parts and put it together, use duct tape and everything. And as we were going, we also, as we were measuring and interacting with people on the ground we started to realize that we wanted to do things a little bit different make it easier to uh, to use the device easier to put it on a car use a bicycle so we kept on improving our, our our versions very quickly so in in the first year I think we did three you know three to five iterations of the hardware every two three months we had a new device and the reason we could do it so quickly was because we used makerspaces to do that so instead of trying to figure out the most perfect Geiger counter on the planet and then build it which would have taken you know in, in tradition maybe years to get there every two three months we had a slightly better one that was responding to what kind of the need and the use was at the time. That's why we never manufactured and today uh, we kind of you know the, the device has matured quite a bit but also uh, uh, if we think about the power of pull we don't know how many people need these devices, uh, where they will need them. So instead of manu- manufacturing, requires lots of money up front. So instead of doing that, people can pull the device from uh, Amazon, build it when they need it and then start using it. It also is very educational. We work with lots of universities and schools these days where people build these things as part of science projects. So it, it, you get involved. Another thing is if you build it yourself, you can maintain it yourself. So I think it is kind of a new way of manufacturing. It's maybe kind of crowd manufacturing, but it is very uh, effective in getting, in, in a very short amount of time, things out shown.
2: Yeah, I think, I think another uh, really important piece too is, is especially um, given the situation, um, manufacturing a device also requires getting it approved to be sold in every possible jurisdiction, right? So if you make a device, maybe you can only sell it in Japan, or maybe you can only sell it in the US. You can't sell it in Europe. You have to have all of these different governing bodies all kind of weigh in on it and decide and they all have different specs for things. So that one one jurisdiction is going to want you to change one thing for them and another jurisdiction is going to want to have it behave a little differently for that. So by not making a manufactured device, but rather by a kit, we can skip all of that all of that sort of bottleneck uh, jurisdictional ready tape and and have these things in people's hands immediately, even if we can't physically give them the device because we published the parts list and the plan. So anybody anywhere around the world could acquire the parts from themselves because everything was off the shelf one way or the other, and then they could build it without having any direct contact with us. And that's just not something that, was po- that would be possible if we had gone a manufacturing route. Um, and then, you know, one thing, um, Keiko
1: asks about sort of the radiation baseline. And I don't think we should go into too much detail, but I think one really important thing that we should note also about the Geiger counters and the baselining is that, you know, there's, there's background radiation that comes out of granite and stuff like that. And, and, and most of the Geiger counters are measuring gamma radiation, which is the radiation that can go through built buildings and walls. And, you know, that's kind of what you would worry about if you assume that radiation, radioactive particles didn't get into the air where you can inhale or ingest them. And that mm-hmm. a lot of the radiation damage that you get when you uh, ingest stuff is alpha and beta. And most Geiger counters actually filter out alpha and beta because gamma is kind of the uh, the baseline radiation that the government uses because they tend to assume that, you know, you're going to get radiation through walls and not through eating. And so all the Geiger counters that were for sale were only measuring... Um, um, gamma. And I think one of the big fights that we had initially was that, um, the people really needed to measure alpha and beta because that was what was going to be in the foods and in the drain pipes and really what they concerned them. But we didn't really have a, uh, because the government kept announcing about like micro sieverts and things like that. But the, the, but the, the, the hard part was a lot of the attacks that we got, I remember, were that, um, we were not measuring in the way that was approved uh, for the way that the media and the government talked about radiation, but we were actually measuring what people wanted to measure. And and I think I think I don't know wh- where we are in this conversation, but that that to me was a that was a huge struggle. Right. Yeah,
0: right. And I I think the the big thing is is that you know besides that the government or or governments in general have some standard they follow to assess what is the you know the, the health effect of, of radiation on on, on a person. Uh, they were not ready to measure anything you know they you know the, the traditional method was a person with a clipboard going out in the field exposing himself with a Geiger counter that only could measure gamma radiation and to see what the dose rates are there was nothing to say that i can measure a whole city in a couple of days time or anything like that so not only were there debates around you know people the people that were were you know criticizing us were basically you know had no ability. I remember that when the disaster happened, the TEPCO didn't have any Geiger counters, or it was out of Geiger counters, so they were asking people, please send us something to measure it. So, so there's no no awareness that it's not just measuring one location. How do you measure the whole city, etc.? Mm-hmm. But if we talk about gamma versus alpha-beta radiation, in the beginning of the accident, nobody really knew what was coming out of the plant. So uh, gamma radiation is this one type of radiation It is the most uh, damaging if you're exposed to it Uh, if if you don't ingest but it goes through everything but better radiation can come from particles that once ingested can uh, do lots of damage like strontium etc so we always said we're going to measure everything and in the beginning when i was in fukushima myself just the weeks after the accident uh, we were also very worried about airborne particles at that time and we 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 just wanted to just measure everything. So we could measure gamma, but we also could see gamma plus beta, there's a change. And we could see, at that time, we could clearly see differences between gamma only and gamma plus beta radiation because there were lots of particles still in the air that were, you know, the that was being blown up and things like that. And by just ignoring that, people also, and we talked about trust, by just saying, oh, no, 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 we are the scientists here. We only do gamma because this is the only way we can think about those, which maybe technically is a statement you can make, but, you're missing out a whole big mm-hmm. part of the puzzle. Today, yeah. what is really important is is that people also have to clean up in Fukushima. So decontamination is happening, and for decontamination, uh, gamma ge- uh, gamma counters are actually quite inefficient. Uh, the cesium that is uh, you know stuck onto everything in in, in the affected areas uh, is primarily uh, uh, sending out lots of beta radiation and some gamma. So if you you know the the system we built can do both. You know you can do gamma only or you can do beta plus gamma, and uh, because of that, you can use this to uh, very, you know, precisely see surface contamination. So if you're in Fukushima and you're you're worried about things and you want to really clean up, you can use this device way, way better. And it's really a pity that uh, uh, governments don't see the, the need for both types of devices in situations like this. Mm-hmm. So they basically come up with a standard, which is maybe, in, you know, from some bureaucratic point of view, we need to have an official number, but really, these type of things need different types of devices for different types of purposes. And and definitely in the beginning, when we started off, you know, lots of people thought we were amateurs. But what they didn't realize is that because we're we're connected to a very big community, we can pull any expert any point of time to improve what we're doing. While we don't have to, you know, dig into a position and say this is the only way we can think about things. And it really allowed us to come up with, you know, I think in, you know, creative new ways. To deal with measurement,
1: yeah, and and there's some com- conversation on <clears throat> the chat about um, calibration and things like that, and and so while the alpha beta gamma um, conversation, uh, you know, we definitely had some uh, uh, arguments about about the measurement. Um, I think we've always been fairly good at um, the calibration part, um, partially because we had. Dan and the Medcom folks who are real professionals. I mean, they had set up the monitoring for Three Mile Island and all these other disasters in the past. So, so we, 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 we had people who really knew what they were doing. And, and when you look on the Safecast map, you can actually drill down and see, um, the sensor that they're using, the device that they're using. Um, and we notate, you know, how far from the ground. And, and I think our, our, our most of our, um, uh, um, activists and volunteers are, are fairly well trained in, in in measuring data. And in fact I I I would go as far as saying it's it's probably more accurate than some of the professionals that go out uh, and you know or 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 just have Geiger counters kind of like strapped to their cars, at least equivalent to those.
0: Just on the calibration, I think there's one important factor in the project that is unique is, is that we measure around the world now. We started in Japan but we now have data from over uh, 60 countries, lots of data from the U.S., lots of data from Europe, uh, lots of data. from uh, And because we measure with the same exact same system in exact same way, we can compare radiation levels between Paris, Tokyo, Hawaii, uh, uh, Seoul or any city in, in, in the world. And that's also very important. After the accident, people wanted to know what is Japan compared to Hawaii or, or to Europe. And we didn't have any comparable data at that time, but now we have a massive uh, amount of c- comparable data. So calibration is one thing, but having a consistent measurement method around the globe is a whole different thing. And we talked about air quality. Air quality, there's lots of measurements going around, but we have the same problem there that there's almost nothing comparable, or we don't know how things are measured. People say it's PM, but we don't really know what the sends, et cetera. So I think having a consistent way where we as citizens can compare ourselves with different areas is very important because once you understand, oh, you know, because radiation is not zero. There's natural background radiation. So when you when you, the first time I saw a Geiger counter, I freaked out. Oh my God! You know, it's, it is. It's not zero. What What do I do now? Then you know very quickly <laughs> you learn because there's internet. But I think that's very important. Um, technically, answer for calibration, we have uh, sent our equipment to uh, labs in Japan and, and the US and and. Uh, and uh, Europe, and we all officially checked our equipment, and wherever you know we got feedback, and it all uh, was perfectly fine. Uh, but uh, yes, it, it's very important. I think the the ability to compare is very important. So you can say that okay, you know what is my situation in Tokyo versus uh, uh, versus Boston or something like that, and that that creates lots of uh, a sense of comfort because once you see a number, you just freak out because you don't have a context. Mm-hmm. So I think that context building has been a big part of our, de- our of our device yeah. and our measurement design.
1: Mike, the
2: saddest thing...
0: I just want, our, you go ahead.
2: I was just going to say, I just want to add that I think one of the really valuable things that, that we've learned too is that um, the approach prior to SafeCast from, uh, you know, from a lot of these sort of organizations was that <laughs> um the public wouldn't wouldn't understand and therefore we couldn't give them them information because they they couldn't understand this so you know we just could sort of give this glossed over um high level stuff instead and i think safecast has proven that like if people can get really good information they want it and they learn about it and they understand it and it gives them a better sense of understanding about them uh, about their own environments as well. And they start to to figure out where where the problems are in how the data is collected and, and how to do it better. Um, and I think that that's helped very much with radiation. And we're starting to see the same things already uh, just with air quality. You know, but one of the examples is that, um, you know, everyone talks about PM 2.5 as kind of the standard and everybody wants to measure PM 2.5 to find out for particulate, um, but PM PM 2.5 isn't actually a standard in any way. So every single air sensor you get that measures 2.5 measures 2.5 differently. So they're all just calling it PM 2.5. But maybe one sensor measures everything from PM 2 to PM 3 and calls that PM 2.5. And another sensor measures everything from 2.2 to 2.7 and calls that 2.5. Um, and these are all kind of variances that until people actually have the chance to dive in and see what they're getting back from this stuff, they don't even know about um, and so more information to the people, I think, creates more educated people, and, and these problems get solved in, in ways they hadn't been before.
1: Yeah. So I so what I was going to say, though, is my the thing that I'm least happy about is, you know, we opened this data up so that anybody can use it, and we use CC0, which allows use without attribution, which is designed for scientists to use it in doing work. But no one that I know of, at least, has... Um, uh, mapped our data onto medical data. I mean, we, we, you don't actually, it's, it's almost impossible to do sort of studies about long-term effects of radiation on people, uh, without some sort of disaster like this. And at, uh, uh, Chernobyl, they didn't do much. At Three Mile Island, they just paid people to shut up. And the, the thing that really sucks is that we have all this medical data of what's going on with people. Um, and we have granular data about every single street corner. And we're not mapping that data together to figure out because there's a, there's a lot of dispute about whether it's a linear thing where um, a little bit more radiation exposure gets you a little bit more sick or is there is it an S-curve where suddenly beyond a certain threshold it gets really bad or is just a little bit a lot really bad? And and we, we, we could get that uh, if we map the data. But as far as I know, I don't think any research uh, has been funded that uses our data uh, and maps it against medical records. I don't know. Have you guys heard anything?
0: But where I think. I think medical data. One of the big problems is is that every hospital has a different system where they pinch in the data, and then on top of that, the, data, the releasing the data is personal data. There is no real, uh, uh, as far as I know, there is no real uh, way to get that data publicly. You know, you can strip out, you know, details like personal details, but there's just no open data for that. And uh, so, researchers that some researchers have been working on the health thing, they have they have a very hard time, I think, to collect any of that of the data, as opposed to getting our radiation maps are fully available. But lots of that that data is is either uh, not available, or it's available with governments, but they won't release it, or it's available with a university researcher that will also not make it open. So I think, in terms of medical data, which I should mention, is really important, specifically for radiation, it's not immediately causing an illness. It takes many, many years to see any kind of, you know, deviation from from, uh, from averages. It's really important, I think, that, you know, one of the, the challenges is the, how do we get open medical data for research that is, you know, uh, doesn't cause privacy issues, is, you know, in a format that is the same for all hospitals and doctors. I don't think that, I think the problem starts there. And uh, I'm not the expert on, on, you know, where we stand on that, but I'm just not aware of, of, of any of that. And we hoped that we would do that. When we started, we actually worked with doctors, et cetera. But it became uh, clear very quickly that, you know, making that data public, uh, it's just not, it didn't happen.
1: Yep. Um, well, I, I, I think, I mean, now I'm going to get into a little conspiracy theory land, but um, I do remember that um, some of the medical doctors that we talked to or researchers uh, said that it was actually very difficult to get funding, um, even just, you know, for to just even poke around, you know, um, and it's it's really it really is unfortunate because this is a tremendous uh, opportunity to learn something about the effects of radiation and and we're going to miss it again Um because it should inform us if something like this happens again um, you know by the way just one of my favorite stories that i i remembered as i was writing the book was um uh remember when um uh we, we went to fukushima and uh they created that non-profit and they had all of these uh uh, funny foreigners coming in, helping them out when the government wasn't there. And then the people of Fukushima, uh, learned from Safecast about how to do decontamination and measurements and radiation. And we sort of demystified it. And I remember when they got together and they said, uh, so we're going to create a nonprofit. So if this happens in any other country, next time we can go and say, we're from Fukushima. We're here to help. And to me, that was, cause that it was funny because a lot of, I think the birth of Safecast was, a bunch of foreigners who couldn't understand the Japanese news and fundamentally didn't trust the Japanese helping local people in Fukushima. And this kind of it's there's a citizen science part, but there's also the citizen to citizen connection. Because a lot of these people in Fukushima traditionally wouldn't wanna hang out with uh funny looking foreigners. But I think there was a really interesting bond. And now when we do our conferences in Fukushima, I I love seeing, you know, all you guys hanging out with the local uh leadership who who's who who who's you know I think their view on on, on foreigners has changed um, quite a bit, and so to me, that's sort of a another interesting byproduct.
0: Yes, I, I, Joey, absolutely true. You know, and, and we are looking like a you know funny bunch of foreigners, and I, I think I think under stress, people behave differently, and suddenly all the formalities and 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 uh, you know uh, things drop, and people start to team up, and I think that is personally for me has been an amazing experience that you know. The, the stress that was caused made people to to act. I'll never forget that we were, you know, a couple of months after the accident, we were in a city called Hirano, which is uh, just under uh, Fukushima Daiichi, about 20, 25 kilometers. And we were there uh, measuring. and uh, We had our car out, and we were walking around uh, near the shore. And suddenly a little tiny car stopped next to us, a little Honda. And an old lady stepped out, and uh, she she basically walked over and said, you know, please come and help measure my house. We, the government is not doing anything. We're waiting now for months, you know, for, for months of the government, the local government to do something. And she didn't look at us like we were foreigners. It just needed help. And we had Geiger counters, and we actually helped her to measure the house. And uh, and so so that, that immediate reaction is very important. But I also think that when you team up, you, you'll also learn to uh, – uh, respect each other's strengths and how do you how do you leverage that? I think we had an opportunity in Tokyo uh, to move quickly because we had you and we had lots of people that we could connect into very quickly, and we were able to get into hacker spaces and other places that somehow you know culturally in Japan it's you know five years later people know what a hacker space is, but five years ago people were a little bit scared. Like, you know, is that okay? Is that legal? <laughs> so to to build stuff, and and I think that you know somebody is going to do something first. But once we started to work on it, you know, this is Japan, this is a country that has the best logistics in the world, you know, infrastructure. Once we got going, our our Japanese volunteers did an amazing uh, job to team up and to start measuring Fukushima street by street. And I think, you know, uh, getting everybody together and figure out who can do what, uh, what best, really was kind of uh, where we are. Now we have taught lots of people how to do that. Uh, I speak regularly uh, about safe costs, but lots of people want to learn, how do you organize yourself like that? How can I do that? And I just start by opening up your computer and start to you know, look at the internet, and that's how you, you can connect into anything. And I think that when you, in your book, you talk about power of pull, and that, that, uh, uh, that concept is indeed very, very powerful.